Hey folks, and welcome to another episode of This Is HCD. My name is Jerry Scullion, and I'm your host, and I'm based in the wonderful city of Dublin, Ireland. Now, I offer training to organizations internationally in service design, user experience design, and design research, and also work one-on-one with changemakers all over the world with my 12-week coaching program that I offer through this podcast on thisishcd.com. Now, about today's guest. Several months ago, I started speaking with today's guest, Mike Parker, owner and founder of Liminal Coaching in Wales in the UK. I'd heard Mike's name mentioned several times over the years online, especially after reading the brilliant book by Dave Gray called Liminal Thinking several years ago. Now, that book for me was transformative, both personally and professionally. And over the years, as I explored ways and means to extend my level of knowledge in this space, I started to read more and more about the benefits of liminality to change makers. So what exactly is liminality? And more to the point, what is liminal thinking? If you haven't read that book, I really encourage you to pick it up. It's a brilliant book and a brilliant read. Now, liminal thinking is a concept and approach to problem solving and understanding the world that deals with the power of the thresholds of perception and belief. Now, the term liminal comes from the Latin word limen, meaning threshold. And in a broader sense, liminality refers to a state of transition, the in-between phase of a process of change where you are on the threshold between one state and another. Some of Mike's work is really fascinating and involves holding space for yourself just to drift. So for anyone who knows me personally, they'd be familiar with the constant drive or chaos that surrounds my own life and is in constant conflict with this idea of just holding space. But I truly love it and I love practicing it. I might not be good at it, but I know I want to get better at it. But that's probably a really nice way of framing it. So this episode is going to be of interest to me or of interest to you if you're like me in that sense. Always running close to empty and always striving for perfection and really ultimately being critically hard on yourself from time to time. So in this episode we tackle some of those pieces and go deeper into Mike's practices. Let's get stuck in. Mike, I'm delighted to have you on the podcast. Um, For our listeners, maybe we'll start off with quick question about who you are what you do um and where, where are you based at the moment uh, i actually live in newport in south wales but uh, everything that we do is delivered online so uh you know the services are pretty well global and most of my clients mm. at the moment are in the u.s actually very good now i stumbled across your work a number of years ago in liminal thinking i think it was i think it was might be mentioned in the book um, by Dave Gray but the liminal coaching piece is something that kind of sits alongside um, a lot of that work and a lot of that stuff that was included in Dave's book um, you mentioned there that a lot of your clients are in the US um, what kind of services do you provide and who are the people that tend to look for those services um the services that we provide basically are to help people uh, process unprocessed subconscious material and to drain out what I refer to as their stress reservoir. So mm. when we talk about stress, it can include unprocessed subconscious material. 
And that means stuff which has happened to us, which has never really been properly worked out, but which may be influencing our decision-making or it may be getting in the way of us being able to do the things we want to do. So the first phase of any liminal coaching program is to clear out the whole backlog of unprocessed stuff. That then forms the basis for doing a number of different things. So we've worked um, to enhance people's creativity, to enhance their collaboration, to help them connect better with intuition and to help to help get into flow states where it's easier to find solutions to complex problems. Sure. So I was actually doing, um, I actually did a talk uh, last week at Bath University at the Operational Research Society annual conference Mm -hmm. on uh, neuroscience, large neural networks and creativity. So there's a lot of scientific background to what we do. It's not just... You know, we don't just hit it and hope. Yeah. So when you talk about the stress reservoir, um, that's a really beautiful metaphor, if you want, for what we're hopefully going to chat a lot more about today. Um, If you imagine that everyone in the world went through liminal coaching and they resolved what was inside their stress reservoir, what would the world look like in your eyes? Oh, we'd be living in a we'd be living in a fabulous world. Would Wales would... be winning the World Cup, the Rugby World Cup? Do you think? <laughs> yeah, probably. It, <laughs> it it wouldn't be it wouldn't be it wouldn't be perfect, but oh. we wouldn't be spending so much time um, actually making things worse for each other. Okay, which is where I was going to take the conversation. So, there's a lot of people, myself included, that have you know, a reservoir that I tend to with through my psychologist and, you know, daily activities that I do to try and keep myself in check. Um, But what do you cover off in being able to address what's inside the stress reservoir? Do you mean, what do we do? Mm, As part of the liminal coaching exercises, how, how do you discover those things? It sounds quite close to psychotherapy in that sense oh yeah i guess yeah there are some parts of it which are taken from psychotherapy so any one-to-one session for example is divided into two parts and the first part is based on uh, pretty much based on solutions focused brief therapy which was developed by steve de Chazza and his wife back in the late 70s early 80s and it was the first time that anyone started looking at the person themselves as being the best resource with the most knowledge about what they needed to solve and where they needed to go. Mm. So there's a, a quite a highly structured first half uh, of discussion, which is based around solutions-focused breathe therapy and it's a solutions-focused approach. I can give you a very brief example. So I'm, I might ask you, um, what does your preferred future look like? What's it like if you wake up in the morning and you're where, you re- where you're really where you want to be? And nine times out of 10, people will say, well, I wouldn't wake up feeling frightened of what the day was going to bring. I wouldn't wake up and immediately check my bank account. I wouldn't wake up and wonder how many horrible emails I was going to get. Okay. So, Have you spoken to my wife? <laughs> so 
at that point, you see, what's happened is that they have evoked the image, the memory, and the emotion of all the things that they don't want to have happen. Okay. Mm. And that yeah. has added, that will have added almost as much stress to the stress reservoir as the actual event will. Mm. Okay. So yeah. what, what we then do is we say, okay, so that's your list of things that would stop happening, which are all the things that you don't like. What I want you to do, what I want to do now is I want to go back through that list and I want to ask you, if that had gone away, if that wasn't happening anymore, what would be happening instead? Right? And it sounds really simple, but at that point, you see, people actually begin to start to think about and imagine where they would like to be. And so they start mm. saying things like, well, I guess I'd feel lighter. Uh, and I'd wake up feeling enthusiastic and happy for the day. And I'd wake up feeling like I can meet any challenges that happen and be perfectly okay with them. And I'd yeah. feel good. So what's happening then is that they're generating all these images and feelings about how they would, where they would rather be. Okay, so the first half of the session basically focuses on developing that as much as possible. The mm. second half of the session, which is the guided relaxation part, is where <clears throat> is where what you have been developing in the first half gets a chance to actually change patterns at a subconscious level and move towards making those things that you've just described become real for you. Mm. So let me give you an example. Um, doing that first half, we think, actually programs an area of the brain called the anterior cingulate, which is like a super secretary and if you've ever had, a, I'm sure you have had uh, circumstances where you maybe you've got a presentation to give, you think about it, you visualize it, you know where it's going to be and when it's going to be. And you've got all the notes, you've got all the slides ready. And your anterior cingulate says, okay, guys, <clears throat> we need to coordinate everything we can find in long-term memory, short-term memory, and everywhere from around the brain to help yeah. to make this thing happen at this time on this day. Right? And then when you get to the actual event, you may be starting your talk and you've got your notes and the slides are up and stuff like that. And suddenly you're remembering far, far better stories that you'd completely forgotten about, much better examples and yeah. completely new ideas have, have come along that you suddenly strike you as being, oh yeah, that's a much better thing to say. And, and then you're on a roll and you're flying and, you're hardly even looking at the notes because they've become irrelevant. So yeah. that's what the interior cingulate does. So the, the idea in the session structure is um, to program the anterior cingulate in the first half of the session. And in the second half of the session, during the guided relaxation, the subconscious gets an opportunity to start doing the repatterning necessary to actually make that happen. Mm. And there's... A lot of um, a lot happens during a guided relaxation, so we can speak very briefly about uh, something yeah. called the default mode network, and that's a, a large neural network in the brain that gets switched on when you're in REM sleep, uh, but also when you're daydreaming, and so also during guided relaxation, and um, it's really very interesting because. I think it was only in 2012 that uh, a couple of scientists, Rachel and Shulman, 
identified that in that state, the brain can be using more energy than it's using on task-focused things like mental arithmetic and stuff like that. Wow. So they decided that it was probably a good idea to stop calling it the idle state of the brain and do some further investigation. Then they found that actually uh, a lot of different parts of the brain started networking together and talking Mm. to each other symphonically in this state. And since then, uh, a lot of research has been done on it, which shows that, well, most recent research um, has produced strong evidence to show that the default mode network is actually causal in creativity. So all those times when you are staring blankly out the window and you or someone else thinks you're not doing anything important, your brain is actually probably on in that state. And mm. at a subconscious level, it's processing uh, extremely complex problems to yeah. deliver solutions to them. It's amazing when you think about it. Like I, when you look at organizations and their, their massive kind of curiosity to be always on and be delivering and stuff. And it's kind of the antithesis of this default mode network. There's a story that I've told on the podcast a couple of times before by John Cleese, where he was writing Faulty Towers and he wrote the first script. And it was during one of his divorces, I believe, and he lost the script. And he realized that he had to write it by hand again. So he wrote the script from memory and he submitted it to the BBC and that's what got made the first season. But when he was clearing out his house, he saw that the first script, the original script was behind the desk. So now he was in a position to compare. And he says that the subconscious had continuously been working on that script. And what he could see was the second script was considerably better. A lot of the storylines were tied up really nicely and neatly. And I can sort of see there's a connection between what you're talking about here, the subconscious and the default mode network. What's that? What is that connection or am I, am I kind of making it up? No, you're not making it up at all. And the default mode network is largely a, a subconscious operation. Right. Um, you're not conscious of it. So when you're staring out of the window blankly, it feels to you like you're not doing very much at all. And yet in the background, you're probably doing something similar to Mendeleev when he um, developed the periodic table, who mm. was stuck. He got he was working on something and he got completely stuck. He knew that there was a pattern there, but he couldn't figure out what it was. Right? He could not actually figure out what the paradigm was until by his own, his own uh, testimony, he says that he saw it three times in a waking dream. And on the third occasion, wrote it down, and only later was it necessary to make one or two minor changes. And that's probably the biggest paradigm shift in scientific history. So mm. you you get some idea of what's happening at a subconscious level is well, we need to we need to we need to find the pattern that fits all this stuff and deliver yeah. it to the conscious mind. How do you see organizations? um approaching this kind of uh, thinking and mindset and what are the resistance uh or what are the resistant blockers if you want to adopting it 
I think it needs to have, there needs to be a commitment to a degree of culture change in order to make it work properly. Because you need to actually bite the bullet of deciding that you are going to suggest to the people who are working for you that they need to be taking regular daydream breaks if they're engaged in in problems which require um, complex solutions. Didn't Google have spaces in their offices? I'm sure they're probably still there in some of them where they encouraged this whole kind of uh, afternoon nap and um, you know sp- space out sessions. I think they were called. I think they might have done, yeah, that would be about napping. And, and napping's a great thing. 20 minutes or so is usually really productive. Um, but um, we provide people with a free tool, which I call liminal Pomodoro, after the, after the Pomodoro yeah. time-boxing technique. But in this case, what you do is you set a timer and every hour you stop and you actually deliberately allow yourself to mind wander or daydream for three to five minutes. It's going to change my life. This episode is going to change my life, folks. I am now have the Parker permission to look out the window and daydream. But when I look out my window, Mike, it's gray and it's raining and it's wet. It's the perfect daydream conditions at the moment in Dublin. Um, I'll send you the tool, which actually has uh, one of the main parts of the tool is a bunch of references from different uh, scientific journals supporting how mind wandering is fundamental to creativity. So I provide that to people so that if someone comes along to them and says, what are you doing? Just staring out the window, they can hold it up and say, well, actually, I'm allowing my brain to work nine times faster at a subconscious level on solving your problems. It's like the reason why I'm not speaking so much in this episode, listeners of this podcast would be like, well, Cherry's kind of not talking as you as much as he usually is because, because I'm pondering an awful lot at the same time. So I'm processing a lot. This is very similar and it's kind of providing a framework for me to reference my own life on. There was periods of my life where when I lived in Australia, when I needed to process stuff, I'd go to Byron Bay one of the most beautiful places in Australia that I loved. Uh, and before you ask, no, there was no drugs involved because it is kind of one of those hippy dippy spaces. But whenever I completely switched off, focused on beach life, walks, good food, um, things started to happen. Like things became clear. And that's where originally this podcast, the whole kind of this is hate city kind of mindset came from one of those trips. So. What was happening there when you release yourself from the pressures of everyday life, you disassociate temporarily from the stressors in the stress reservoir, to use your language, Mm -hmm. something was unlocked in my brain and it happened more than once, happened several times. Can you give me the scientific kind of understanding on what might have happened? And there, like, where I, I saw this moment of clarity on what I needed to do with my life. It, I mean, it's highly likely that you were spending quite a lot of time <clears throat> with your default mode network switched on. Mm. And one of the things that we do know the default mode network does is to con- be continually working on reviewing, revising, 
and making more complete and more intricate our understanding of ourselves and our relationship with the world and other people around us. Yeah. There's a whole book, um, it's a hot new area of neuroscience called social neuroscience, which was pretty much, well, the godfather of it pretty much is a guy called Matt Lieberman, who wrote a great book called Social, which is well worth reading. Okay. Which explores uh, a lot of this kind of stuff about how much of the, how much of our time uh, with the default mode network switched on is taken actually working out and computing our social relationships with one another because they're so fundamental mm -hmm. to our survival. So a lot of air quotes here, folks, creatives, um, am I right in assuming are pretty, um, pretty comfortable with that default default mode network process. I mean, I could see this when I worked in ad agencies and now they had have pool tables and table tennis and computer games and stuff. They were consciously trying to, push us into that mode where we would. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's, it's kind of funny that because a lot of those things, a lot of those games and stuff will actually will actually exacerbate or amplify the sympathetic nervous system, which is oh, really the, the antithesis of it. Which is centered around the amygdala, the fight flight response center. Yeah. So it's actually about when you think about it, pool is about calculation and winning and stuff like that. Most games have that kind of competitive winning mindset. It's engaging your sympathetic nervous system rather than your parasympathetic nervous system, which is more associated with that kind of quiet uh, realization, insight type thinking. So I'm not really sure how effective that would be. How those situations are. Let's take a step back from the conversation for a second, Mike. Okay, so sure. I'm speaking to you. It, it sounds like even your voice is very much controlled. Um, and when I'm listening to you, you've got my full attention. What is your background and how did you get into this area? Okay, well, that's quite a long story. So I'm going to try and praise you. We've got it. time, Mike. We've got time. People are driving their cars and out for a walk. Well, Listen to this. Well, I, I've always been absolutely fascinated by the mind, the brain, and different mm -hmm. brain states, different states of mind, uh, which is why I got into trouble at school when I was 14 for hypnotizing my classmates during the you lunch. You did hour. not. <laughs> I did. You did not. I did. How did you do this? I, well, there was a book in the school library called Hypnotism for Medical and Dental Practice. <laughs> that is absolutely brilliant. Did you have <laughs> one of the watches to go? No, no, we weren't. You know, it was just a progressive muscle relaxation technique. Right. So you did that at 14. Yeah. I'd say you were popular with the teachers. Oh, not particularly. Uh, my form teacher was pretty irritated with me, actually. So what did that look like? You put somebody to sleep, was it? Or did you put them into a different state? You put them into a different state. And sometimes it looks a lot like sleep. Uh, the default mode network does get switched on. The, the anti-gravity muscles get suspended. Those are the ones which keep you up, upright. Uh, and stuff so it's the same as REM sleep right and then you can do but you can do a whole bunch of different things so you can regress people um to recover previous memories I used to regress people to their third or fourth birthday parties and get them to give details about them and you can get them to anesthetize themselves so I was getting people to anesthetize their hands and then uh sticking compass needles in them I sterilized the needles first well that's nice of you 
You were doing this at 14. <laughs> what yeah. is the name of that book? And is it still on the shelf? <laughs> I've, I've, I've got it here, actually. Um, it's called Hypnotism for Medical and Dental Practitioners. And I think it was uh, published in 1960. It's wow. actually a pretty good factual, pretty good factual um, book. In fact, written by a doctor, I think. So at 14, you kind of aligned yourself to what you believed was your purpose. You wanted to learn more and explore the mind. Yeah, I did. <clears throat> but two, the two things that happened were, first of all, I found out um, that hyp hypnosis was considered to be absolutely fringe and almost verging on the occult, especially back in the 70s. Mm. So the... Uh, the matron at school was completely freaking out because she thought it was black magic. And um, there were, uh, it wasn't until about 15, 16 years ago when we started looking at, at fMRI and EEG evidence that um, you could say for sure that hypnosis induces a different brain state. Up until that point, there were people making entire careers out of uh, disproving that anything happened when people were using hypnosis. So I was looking at what I really wanted to do was to study psychology. But when I looked around at what was available, the only thing you could study was behaviorism, which mm. is about as interesting as watching paint dry, really, and and not particularly helpful in terms of, of um, seeing what we could do with what was an, obviously an enormously powerful capability that everybody has everyone can access yeah. so that that meant that there weren't really any avenues open apart from in the on the west in the west coast of the us there weren't any avenues open for exploring that kind of thing properly so i did it myself really i i spent years i did another career in information technology and payment systems and then i also mm. spent years looking at different models of of psychology from different cultures and what was happening in our own and so on. So it's opened up a lot more. Sorry. Yeah. You became a student of the mind. Yeah. Yeah. When I when you're speaking about this stuff, I see a big connection between systems thinking and uh organizational change and also complexity. Yeah. Um one of the pieces that I'm very interested in, and we've had Neil Thies from the author of Notes, Notes on Complexity uh, earlier this year, is the understanding and the acceptance of working within complex problems and what's required to, you almost have to relinquish this, this power that we tend to think that we have when working within complexity and become masters of experimentation to see what works mm -hmm. without that mindset and i've gone on that journey for the last couple of years reading what are the risks um that persist for practitioners as designers as change makers as business leaders whatever it is to not do the work that you're talking about doing here like addressing what's within the stress reservoir um and just continuously challenge is it is it fair to say that it'll be more difficult to access that complexity mindset yeah for most without... people, for most people it will 
I, for some some people who have, who are blessed with great good fortune and who've had parents who aren't alcoholic or mm. don't beat them over the head or whatever, and and who haven't had major trauma happen in their lives or even a, consist, a consistent level, consistent background low level uh, trauma, um, and who are that way inclined and have have had plenty of time and have plenty of space and mental space in which to relax. It's probably a natural thing. I actually think that the majority of people are naturally inclined, obviously, to spend time in those states because they know mm. that they're beneficial. Um, but it's actually, yeah. if you think about the, cult, the work culture that we've got and the industry culture that we've got, it's really based on uh, Taylorism still, isn't it? And, it, and that mm. fundamentally comes from industrial revolution thinking. Yeah where you look at human beings as being elements of a elements of a vast machine and nothing else. So yeah. the only thing that you're interested in is measuring how many units of X that they're, yeah. they're producing in a given amount of time. Yeah. Um, and that is completely antithetical to what most people need to do their best creative work. Yeah. So there's a big cultural uh, problem there, I think. And it, I think it's very hard for a lot of people to do that. To get you into mentioned, the right mindset. Yeah. You've mentioned several times um, traumas in people's lives. A lot of people listening to this podcast, you know, are familiar with the understanding of the complexities that persist within um, addressing traumas in our lives. Um, not everyone is fortunate enough to recognize that they have had trauma and they, they live their life in a state where almost in denial. Um, and I believe that to be the majority. I think a lot of people have suppressed an awful lot of trauma in their lives that can provide blockers yeah. um, unbeknownst to them. Can you give me your definition of what you think trauma is? I can, <clears throat> very briefly. Um, normally, if you have a stressful event happen, uh, what will happen is that, that it will create an emotionally charged memory. Mm. One of the things that happens when we go to sleep, when we're in REM sleep, when the default mode network switches on, one of the things I'm pretty sure it does is to drain most of the emotion out of that memory. It leaves a little bit so you can still remember the significance of it because emotion mm. is what actually gives value, a sense of value and judgment to our lives. So it drains out most of the emotion. And the other thing we're pretty sure it does is to take that memory and put it on what they call the narrative timeline. So it gives it a position in your personal history and says, this yeah. happened after this event and before this event. So your brain knows it's in the past. Right? Yeah. What I think is, I think um, has been fairly well established is that in circumstances where something bad happens to you and you are completely powerless, you're unable to even try to do anything about it, so, of course, a lot of this happens in childhood. The memory may not get processed in the usual way. So it doesn't have all the emotion drained out of it, and it isn't put onto the narrative timeline. So when something triggers that memory from a very a similar event, and if you've got a lot of stress, by the way, the event doesn't need to be that similar, something triggers that memory, what happens is 
you re-experience all of the emotion because it hasn't been drained out and it feels like it's happening now because it's not on the narrative timeline. So you right. get that sense of, oh, God, this is happening to me again. This keeps happening to me. Why does this keep happening to me? Right. And whatever it, whatever event triggered the uh, that original memory also gets tagged with that emotion. So that event becomes part of a, an overall bundle of stuff around the original event. And it, 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 it's the same thing happens with phobia. Um, there's what they call an initial sensitizing incident, which is for some reason you can't do anything about it. There's a terrible, fearful thing associated with maybe a spider or a snake or whatever. Um, and that gets that can get worse over time. So I, I had a lady who had had a snake phobia for 30 years and it had got so bad that um, when a cartoon snake came on the TV, she'd turn white and start shaking and have to leave the room. So we did uh, some sessions on that using a technique from NLP, which is called Rewind. And um, she thought it hadn't worked, but then a week later she emailed me from the snake house in Vancouver Zoo and said, I don't know what happened, but something clicked and... I still don't like them very much, but I'm in the snake house and I'm not sweating. Wow. It's crazy. Um, I want to ask you a little bit more on draining the emotion. You mentioned there about that. How is that possible? Um, how does that work? It's a great question. And I, and I wish I knew the detailed answer to it. And I'm not sure that anyone actually knows in depth what the detailed answer to that is yeah. i think the limit of knowledge at the moment is that during rem sleep this processing happens and i guess what happened i it must have something to do with um releasing any tensions which are still in the body and in the in the emotional brain hmm. and and putting it into perspective, I think that's what happens with the processing. So, okay. you know, when it when we talk about this stuff, I should say, you can't talk about you can't actually talk about anything without using metaphor. So, these yeah. are all metaphors. They're never you're never going to have a, an absolute physical description of of what the process is. Yeah. <clears throat> when we were talking earlier on, there you, you spoke about um, the work that you do with organisations about about forming metaphors. Um, mm. Tell me more about what that looks like in terms of how organizations come together and what are they creating a metaphor of? So in some group work that we've done with a couple of organizations, what we would do would be to say, okay, what journey does this group of people want to take? So if it's an exec team, for example, yeah, what's what's the... What journey do you want to take? Where do you want to get to? What's the goal? Yeah. And then we see it as being a journey. And uh, then we would use a short, special guided relaxation, which encourages them to see a landscape, which is a metaphor for the journey that they want to take. Then after that, <clears throat> we'd ask them to describe their landscape and the elements in it. What did they see? What was there? And we get answers from the whole team. And we put them all up on a board so that all the members of the team can see what metaphors one another came up with. 
and how they relate to each other. So you build a canvas, a metaphor canvas of the journey that the group of people want to take together, which is an aggregate composite of what their subconscious has produced in terms of the mm. metaphors that they saw, right? Can you so give me an example? Can you give me an example of, don't have to give me any client information, obviously, <laughs> but um, say you're working for a large bank and you had the exec team and they wanted to solve some problems. Why would they use this method? I think the main reason for using the method is because once you start working with metaphor, you begin to open up uh, a very, very innovative perceptions of what's going on. Can yeah. I give you a brief example? Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, <clears throat> I play something with clients, with, with clients and people who come to my webinars. At the end of the webinar, we have like a half hour for questions and stuff. And I, I love to play this thing I call the metaphor game. And the metaphor game is where you say to somebody, okay, so you whatever problem or, or issue you've got, you don't have to tell me what it is, but whatever it is, I just want you to imagine that it's a landscape and just describe the landscape, okay? So um, one guy we had said, well, I'm on a desert island. Uh, there's nothing around but ocean. It's very small. There's one tree. There's no yeah. food. There's no boat. There's no way off it. Sounds pretty grim, right? Yeah. So then what you do is you start asking what I call clean questions about the environment. And so, well, do you ever see any ships on the from the island? Do you ever see any ships or boats? Yep, yep. There are ships and boats come past quite often. And are any of them? Do any of them come near enough so that if you were to wave or shout, they might see and hear you and take you off the island? And he went, oh, "Yeah, God, yes." And then he told us that his issue was actually social isolation. Uh, and that had been exacerbated by COVID. But by mm. using the metaphor, by using the metaphor landscape, he was able to see something that he wasn't able to see before. And basically, when he translated it back, it was actually there are people that I can reach out to, and I'm just not doing that. Okay. So within the business context of, say, you've got 10, 20 people in a workshop. Mm. That provides a level or requires a level of vulnerability from the participants to put themselves out there. We wouldn't, potentially... necessarily, we wouldn't necessarily ask ask people yeah. in that environment to go through that particular process. I'm just using that as an illustration then, of how, okay. of how um, developing a metaphor for where you are and where you want to get to yeah. and reveal things that you wouldn't normally see. So okay. uh, in one case where we did, a, we did it with a group, um, Somebody came up with uh, a tree, a particular kind of tree, a dragon tree, um, which represented for them a particular part of the journey that they wanted to take, that they were going to take. Yeah. Somebody else came up with a chasm. Someone else came up with a river. And, and when the chasm, they knew that the chasm was this particular problem that they'd been thinking about. But when they looked at it as being a chasm, then we could ask the question, what would help to cross the chasm? And they said, well, actually, I could use wood from the tree to help to cross the chasm. Hmm. Because the dragon tree had represented, I think the, the dragon tree had represented 
the insight that we're going to need for somebody, yeah. one person that was a tree. So by um, by actually using that technique, you get completely new perspectives on things. But as the people in the team are putting up their metaphors on the board, and I've actually used um, Miro for this, mm. as people are putting up their metaphors on the board, they start seeing relationships between their metaphors and metaphors that other people are coming up with and they start going oh yeah so you see it that way oh so yeah you think it's a nuclear explosion well that's a bit like my abyss and so what happens is that because metaphors always come loaded with feelings as well as thoughts yeah. and patterns people begin to actually relate to and understand where each other are coming from at a subconscious level mm. So it lays a very uh, lays an amazing groundwork for what is basically a, a socially negotiated metaphor map of the journey that the team wants to take. Right? So we then take that and we take it away, and I write a, a bespoke uh, special guided relaxation around it, which we then get them to use, get the team to use while they're going to sleep each night, yeah. and. Uh, and we back that up with one some one to one sessions if they feel that they want them. Really, it's 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 awesome to hear that organizations that they're already using these kind of methods to help understand themselves and their position within their ecosystems. Um if people want to find out more about this kind of stuff, I know Dave Gray's got liminal thinking, which was the gateway into your world. Um, what's the best way for people to find out more about the coaching, the liminal coaching pieces? And also well, some of the workshops there that you, you covered off, um, they were probably part of Liminal Creatives. Was it? Yeah, there's liminalcreatives.com, which is more geared to people working in, in the creative community. Um, mm. Uh, so we have quite a lot of writers and artists and people in PR and advertising and stuff like that who are very interested in that side of it. Liminalcoaching.com is slightly more kind of corporately oriented. So there we yeah. talk about we talk about doing programs where we we would always start, by the way, by suggesting an initial program to drain out people's stress reservoirs and process unprocessed material. That's just a baseline. That's yeah. where you have to start from. Um, so basically, uh, go to either website, and I'm more than happy to talk to anyone who wants to chat because it's this my I geek out on this stuff. So anyone who just yeah. wants to talk about it, I'm really happy to do so. I can definitely tell it's something that you love. It's not just a job, which yeah. um, it's something that you've given your life to as well. Because I can hear. The, the deep level of expertise coming through and how you speak about these complex issues. So, Mike, listen, I really, really enjoyed speaking with you today. I'll put a link to Liminal Coaching and to Liminal Creatives into the show notes. I'll also put a link to your LinkedIn, if that's okay, so for people to connect with you and ask questions. But I like to wrap up every session that I do with thanking you, the guest, for giving me your time. And also your vulnerability about me asking questions and putting you on the spot and so forth. So I really, really appreciate you giving me the time today. So thank you so much, Mike. I certainly appreciate being here. Thank you. Mm -hmm.